I'm going to ask a very, very profound question. What makes a great church? Now, there's a lot of different answers that people will come up with if you ask that question generally. What makes a great church? Is it the size of the building? Now, for some, that's a big deal. You go into a church, you feel like you're at the mall, you know, it's like, wow, all these things. Um, yeah, that could be. Uh, the amount of people attending. It's interesting when you, you know, as a pastor, you go and you interact with other pastors and, hey, how you doing? And where are you from? I'm from such and such. And, oh, you know, how many people do you have in your church? As if that's the measure of what a great church is. And by the way, I think we have a great church. And it's not because of how many people we have. It's because of the people that we have and the great God that we have, right? Um, is it the abundance of programs for children, teens, and family? All good, but is it that? Is it the slick, up-to-date technology? I don't have any pyromaniacs thing going up here. You know, it's, it's, it's basic stuff. Um, uh, is it the clever and professional makeup of the morning worship service? Some are wrestling with that this morning. Is it the amount of missionaries that are supported? I, I grew up in a context, and much of the context from the Midwest, you go into a church and they boast how many missionaries they support. And that has some bearing as to the effectiveness then of churches for missions when the focus is on how many and not how richly we partner with those in mission. Um, is it the good feeling that you have when you leave the church service that is the measure of the greatness of the church? Is it the fact that your pastor is a great and incredible theologian? You don't have to worry about that one, but is that the measure of the greatness of your church? You know, and I would say all of these things are good. They have a place. I mean, it's nice to have a building. It's nice to have you know, a certain amount of people, have programs for, for kids to support missionaries. It is good, I think, to feel um, good in a, in a sense because you have visited with God during Sunday morning and fed from the word and you've been convicted and through that conviction you've also experienced a reconciliation with God that's a good thing but if it's just all warm fuzzies that's not necessarily what we're looking for I think that although there's a lot of ways we can say it what is important is that we understand that a great church is one that is committed to living out the great commandments and the Great Commission. Love God, love others, as well as, I'm saying, making disciples. Those are all the core, I might want to say, commitments of the mission of the church. And now, for many of us, we know these passages. We read them, and some of you probably could quote them, except you probably memorized it in the King James or something like that, right? Um, you could quote these verses. You've studied these verses. These are you know, initial verses, the kind of thing you'll get in Sunday school class, and you've grown up with them. We're very familiar with them, and we want to be careful that's not a hindrance. There's a reason why we're familiar with them, because they are so important to what we are to do as a church, not only as a church, but as individuals that make up that church. But the question for us may not be, can we quote these texts, or do we remember them from Sunday school, but what do these things look like? What do they involve? How are they to be faithful, or how are we to be faithful um, to each of these great texts? And I believe the answer is in one word. And it's a word we're gonna kind of, uh, we're gonna think through a little bit today. It's not a biblical word at all, 
but it's a word that I think helps us put into a package what is going on here. And by the way, as we, as we go through our time today, and we talk about the mission of the church, we can think of it corporately, and we should, and we'll apply things corporately, but I, I first of all want us to apply it personally. These are individual mission, uh, missions that God has given each of his children for the, for the glory of, uh, of himself. So it's not just corporate, it is also for us personally. Now, this word is the word proximity. It's the word proximity. What does the word proximity mean? It means nearness in place, in time, um, in order, in occurrence or relationship. So it's this idea of, of nearness. Another definition would be the state or quality or the sense or fact of being near or next to, closeness. So the idea here is, is there's, there's, a, there's a need for us to be close in these particular areas with the two commandments, to be close to God, to be close to others in our pursuit of God, in our pursuit of others, then also to be in proximity or to be moving closer to the mission of making disciples that God has called us to, not just as a church, but as individuals. And that's really, in a nutshell, what we're going to be looking at today and examining what, uh, what God says for us in these passages. So, so basically the theme is this. Jesus, in these great passages, teaches and instructs the church regarding its overall mission, a vertical mission, a horizontal mission, and what I'm calling a redemptive mission. Those are the main points, all right? A vertical mission, a horizontal mission, and then also a redemptive mission. And he's calling us to know the mission, to apply the mission, and to proclaim the mission. He wants us to absorb it so that we have an awareness in our thinking about it. He also then wants to take the next step and to actually apply it so that we are doing the things that we're commanded to do, that we are fulfilling the great commission that he's called us to. And then as we have opportunity to be proclaiming that same mission, and we do that as we encourage one another. The ladies, when they were up here, although it may not have been articulated that way, we're doing just that. They were calling you once again to remember the gospel. They were calling you once again to be reminded of the impact of God's truth on your life, not just to know it, but to embrace it and to live it, okay? So let's just pause right now for a, a moment in time just to, to go before God and ask for his help. Lord, what we know not will you teach us. What we are not, will you make us, Lord? What we have not, will you give us? Lord, we are dependent on you. We are nothing except for you working in us. And so, Lord, help us today to remove ourselves from the equation and simply, Lord, to allow you freedom to do what you desire to do in our hearts, to fashion and to shape us and to mold us uh, for your glory, to be like your son, Jesus Christ, and to carry on the mission that you've called us to personally as well as corporately as the church, Lord, that you've established here in the Bay Area. We need your help. And Lord, in particular, as, as your messenger today, Lord, just allow me to be your mouthpiece and that you would be heard, we ask in your name. Amen. So let's first of all look at what we're calling the vertical mission of the church. The vertical mission of the church. And let's go back now to uh, chapter 22, beginning at verse 37. And here we find Matthew recording what Jesus says. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Now what Jesus is saying in the context of Matthew's gospel is not new to this Jewish audience at all. In fact, he is quoting from the Old Testament. 
He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. But I'd like for us to go back to Deuteronomy 6, and we need to look at that passage because what we find in this passage are the core values of a Jewish home. This is what God has commanded a Jewish home to be doing, and it now is brought back up again by Jesus for us in a New Testament context. So we want to go back and just discover once again what was being talked about there in Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we'll begin at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down uh, in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontless between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Now, the, the Jews took some of this stuff real literally, right? I mean, they had these things around their heads and on their arms and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, on the doorpost, you go to a Jewish home, you usually find this little thing that's right there, okay? There, there is, there's a sense in which some of this should be taken literally, but it's really expressing something that is this big picture that's saying in every aspect of your life, in every way, in everything that you do, we, God wants you to do a couple of things. Number one, to have a proper understanding of his character. So that in all of life, when you're lying down, when you're, when you're on the way, when you rise, you're, you're, you're learning and you're taking in about who God is and what he has done. And so when we talk about tradition in its proper sense, the passing on of truth to the next generation, it is the passing on of truth about who God is, what he has done. And as parents in the family, we do that not just at formal times of family devotion, but as you're driving down the street, as you're playing golf, as you're at the pool, it's interacting and just bringing God into the picture, bringing God into the story. You know, standing at, in Tahoe and, and, and seeing this beautiful lake a couple of weeks ago, and then looking up at the mountains, you're just reminded of just, again, God's beauty and his grandeur. And, and life is full of times when we say, God is at work. And we, we remind ourselves of God's character. So God is to be completely before us at every step, at every place, and in every relationship. Okay? We must be careful, however, um, for it is not enough simply to believe in God. Now, I say that, and some, you know, if you if you're, have been with us as we've been studying through the Gospel of John, what is one of the purposes of the Gospel of John? I've written these things What? That you may believe, okay? And that in believing, you will have life. And understand that believing simply a mental assent that, that God is God is not sufficient for your conversion. How do I know that? Well, look at uh, this next verse if you want to follow along. James 2, 19. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Now get this. The demons are not submissive to God. If anything, they're doing everything they can to fight against his rule and reign. But they believe he exists. They believe he is God, but they are not submissive to him. So it's possible in the way that James is talking about it here, 
for you and I, or for someone, to be a believer in God, but to be an unbeliever. <laughs> to believe that he exists, but to shake their fist at him and not be willing to submit to his guidance, his counsel, and his leadership in their lives. That's why it's important for us to talk about the lordship of Jesus Christ. He is Lord. Whether you make him Lord or you think you can, it doesn't matter. He is. Okay? So those, those are some important realities for us that we need to recognize here. And so as we're, as we're seeking to understand him, we also are coming to the place uh, you know, along the way here that we not, well, not only understand him, but we also have a complete love for him. This understanding produces in us an awareness of his character, and the awareness of his character then produces in us an awareness of his love for us, which produces in us a love for him. Thou shalt love the Lord your God. Why? Well, look at him. He's on display. And all the time you're looking around, there he is, there he is, there he is. How many times have you almost gotten in an accident and you say, thank you, Lord? And then if you've been in an accident, what do you say? Thank you, Lord. I mean, you still recognize his presence and his work because it could have been worse, right? And even when tragedy hits, we know because of God's goodness that even tragedy is a part of God's purpose to bring glory to himself. So we, we, we root ourselves in that. Now, what does it mean then to love God? Turn, if you would, please, to John chapter 14. Um, John chapter 14. And I think, uh, um, we, we, I think this is going to be helpful as we just think through what, what do we do and how do we live out um, being responsible to this, this first great commandment. John 14, beginning at verse 23. Question is, how, or what does it mean to love God? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him and will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So Jesus is saying, when I speak, it's the Father speaking through me, and if you are obedient to my word, that's evidence that you love me. But if you are not obedient, that's evidence that you do not love me. All right? So the bottom line is, how do I show that I love God based on this passage? What is Jesus saying? Keep my commandments. Keep my word. Make my word so valuable and so important um, that you are hungry for it, you're longing for it, that you're spending time in it. So, uh, the, you know, one of the, the best ways, the main ways that Scripture tells us to love God is by being obedient to his word. Now, notice in that passage, it tells us there that when we do that, when we're obedient to his word, God loves us, he comes to us, and he makes his home or abides in us, okay? Now, it's just, it's amazing how, how obedience is, is, is part of the package here. Now, God is not up there playing whack-a-mole, i.e. fail, boom, all right? He's not doing that, all right? But there is a sense of how do I maintain this relationship? You maintain this relationship by obedience to his instructions. That's how you're going to be growing. That's how you demonstrate your love for him. Okay? Now, th the problem when we come to a passage like this is that we, we, in our English culture, in our English language, the word love can mean so many different things, right? I mean, I love coffee. Um, I love Australian black licorice. I mean, there's some licorice. It's like, come on, you know? And then there's the good, you know, kookaburra 
Australian stuff. This is a little plug. I'm just, you know, it's my own little thing, right? I love black licorice. I love Marmite. Anyone here like Marmite? No? All right. So, yeah, you have no idea what it is. Discovery time for you, all right? I love it. I love soccer. I love to read. I love history. I also love my children and my wife. So, um, we use love casually in different ways in the same sentences. Listen, honey, have you, you've been working so hard today, so because I love you, I want you to have a break from cooking dinner. Let's get a pepperoni pizza with extra cheese. You know how much I love cheese, right? I mean, th- th- we, this word love is so watered down that, that we really need to understand what is, what is being talked about here. In the Greek language, there are actually three words for love. And I'm sure you know this. There's agape, which is a committed love. That's that I call it a love without strings attached. It doesn't change based on our behavior. It is God's commitment to us. Okay? Then there's phileo love, which, of course, comes from Philadelphia. All right? The city of brotherly love. Um, that's yeah, facetious. I'm being facetious. Okay? You go to Philadelphia. You probably will not experience phileo. But that's the idea. There is brotherly love. It's familial love. It's the kind of love you have for your family. Um, and, and there's something about family that even if someone, you know, isn't walking the way they should, you still have this kind of commitment to them, this relationship with them. So phileo love is very strong. It's a good kind of love. Then there's eros love, and, and it has its rightful place, but it is this more sensual love, okay? Um, and the, the love that's being talked about, though, in, in this passage, in, in our uh, the great commandment passage is the word agape. Now, let me tell you something. You and I will not love God in an agape kind of love like God loves us in an agape kind of love because we are, we are tainted with sin. But it is our pursuit. It is what we strive for. We are to love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, and mind. So, we are to love God based on his impeccable, awesome character because he is unwavering no matter what the circumstances or struggles we face. His love is consistent with us and we should be loving him. Now, hear this. We are not to measure our love for God by our emotions, but rather our obedience. Now, <laughs> this is so important when we're living in a, an experiential world and experiences have their rightful place, but hear this, you can sing all the songs that you want and have your experience in worship, but if your heart is in rebellion, i.e. you're living in disobedience, you're fooling yourself into thinking that you are worshiping or loving God. So you can come on a Sunday morning and hear the kind of songs and stuff that we were singing and just have this great experience. Oh, it was such so uplifting to sing that song, but you know in your heart you have sin. This is what God says about that. To obey is better than sacrifice. In other words, don't think that your activity of worship, void of obedience, pleases God at all. How do I love God? We've already seen it. By being obedient to his word. That's how we demonstrate to him, I love you. My desire is to hear your word, to understand your word, and then to apply it, which means I'm being obedient to it. Now, we can seriously be passionate in our obedience, but our passion that is disobedient is an offense to God. And I, I, would, I would dare say that there are many within Christendom today that come week after week to a church service knowing full well 
their deliberate, purposeful disobedience and think that their worship in the context of corporate worship pleases God when they are living daily in sin and they know it and they want to do nothing about it. American culture for you. They don't take seriously their sin and their obedience to God. Listen, that's why the song that you probably grew up with in Sunday school says this. When we, when we walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way. While we do his good will, he abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. This is where this is coming from. All right? How do you show your love for God? You show your love for God by being obedient. And so this brings us then to the principle um, of um, principle of divine proximity. So let's just use the word proximity. The goal then with, with my love for God, as I put it here, is we are to be pursuing or becoming like Jesus with our whole being every day and in every way. Here's the commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And back in the Old Testament, this is heart, soul, and might. Okay? The goal here is that you are pursuing, being like Christ, being Christ-like, pursuing God. All right, um, with your whole being every day and in every way. You notice in the passage here in the command, with your heart, soul, and mind, this is not, get this, this is not talking about three different parts of your body coming together and representing all those three parts and stuff. It is simply a figure of speech or a, a method of speech to express our whole being that is pursuing God. There are other passages of scripture that have four parts and five parts. But the, the point here is that in our whole being, we are longing and looking and pursuing God, and we are demonstrating our love for him because of our proximity to him. Are you getting closer to God? Now, in one sense, he's everywhere, right? We know that he's everywhere, but getting closer in your relationship. You are a child of God. You're one of his, you're one of, uh, his, his family members. You have been given all these beautiful rights and inheritances and all sorts of stuff. But is there this ongoing relationship that is growing and growing and growing and growing? And are you getting closer to him in that pursuit? That's the idea of that commandment. It's not just saying, oh, yeah, I love you in theory. It's saying, I love you in practice. And there's progress that is certainly demonstrated there. So... Um, to maybe to put it uh, in, in simple fashion here, the principle of divine proximity is that you are growing closer to him every day in his word, listening to his word, being obedient to his word. Let me just encourage you, if you have not yet developed the habit of having a daily personal time with God where you're reading his word and you're allowing him to speak to you through his word, I would just encourage you, you need to start that because that's how God, that's how God ministers to you. And there's lots of different programs out there. There's lots of different ways you can do that. You can read. Um, but, you know, God uses his word. He speaks to us through his word. And, and Sunday morning is not sufficient for you. It's something that should be cultivated as a daily practice for, for all of us to read it, to meditate it, to ask questions about it, to apply it. So you're, you're taking it, and then on the way, you're chewing on it, and you're thinking about it. And as you're at work, whatever you're doing, you're... You're multitasking, right? But in your mind, you're also thinking about the things that God has been teaching you, and that's part of our, our growth process with God. So there's this vertical mission. And friends, God has called us from a missional perspective to pursue him. He's called us to do that. That's our first mission. Our second mission, then, is this horizontal mission, this horizontal mission. Here's the second commandment. 
And the second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Now please notice that what's not being talked about here is this. This is, this is not a command here to, to love ourselves as some um, psychologists would um, misinterpret this passage. We're not being told here that you and I need to love ourselves and with, when we love ourselves and then we love God, then we can love others. No, what's going on here is, you know, is, is Jesus is recognizing we already love ourselves. We already are consumed with ourselves. When we're hungry and thirsty, what do we do? We look for food and we look for drink because we want to take care of ourselves. You know, you don't say, oh, I feel, I feel hunger pains. Would you like something to eat? It's, it's, I want something to eat. Now, you might be courteous to let them eat first, but you can't wait to jump in there and get a bite yourself. When you have a headache, what are you longing for? You know, you may be an ibuprofen person. You may be a Tylenol person, right? Whatever it might be. But I tell you what, you're looking for those things. Why? Because you're concerned about yourself. You're concerned about your well-being. It's natural. It's part of who we are. We are always concerned about ourselves. Hopefully, most of you looked in the mirror today. Right? You probably did. Why? Because you had to make sure that you were at least somewhat presentable. You care about yourself. It's natural. We all think that way. And the point here then is this. In the same way that you already naturally love yourself, we are to love others. Now, um, it's important that we realize that, that our love for others is part of this, this flow and a part of this process in this passage. When God loves us first, the great commandment and the foremost commandment um, then is, is fleshed out, that we then are to love him and then secondly, to love others. Notice uh, up on the screen there, you see that little, you see the fountain up there? Oh, what happened? We lost everything. So you don't, hold on, we'll, we'll get there. There we go. See a little fountain there? So think about, think about God's love going up through the fountain, Okay. And, and it, it overflows, and, and the first catch there is then is, is just this, this our, our need to love him, which overflows then into our need to love others. That's the point. It, you can't love others properly unless you're loving God properly. You cannot understand how to love others effectively and properly unless you understand how to love God effectively and properly. And in order to love God effectively and properly, you have to listen to what he says about himself and how to love him effectively and properly, right? So I'm saying there's a flow to all this going on here. And our priority then is to love him first and to be in awe of his love for us. That overflows then into all sorts of different relationships. So a right relationship with God will allow me to have a right relationship with my spouse, with my children, with my extended family, my coworkers, my friends, my college roommates, an anti-God professor, my neighbors, the lady working the cash register at Safeway, the lady who arrives to clean your workplace after you leave, the man sitting in the toll booth on the Bay Bridge. Can you imagine that job? Have you ever smiled and said, hey, thank you for what you do? Okay. Uh, your relationship with God will allow you to have a right relationship with that homeless man that you see at Starbucks almost every day and that you go and get your caramel macchiato or whatever you get. 
that person behind the counter at Hayward DMV, that little old man who was driving 20 miles per hour in front of you on the way to church this morning, the, the mother with all those unruly kids at the doctor's office, the businessman who sits next to you for an hour on the plane, the mailman or woman, your political representative, whether Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or whatever they may be. Listen, all, all of those relationships and just a myriad more are all affected by how you love God and your willingness to see your relationship with him as the basis for your relationship with others. So the, the, the second commandment does not stand independent of the first commandment. We get the point there? Okay. Because of our relationship with God, we are compelled to have a right, loving relationship with those that God has put in our lives. That's why verse 40 says what it says. On these two commandments, what? Depend all the law and the prophets. In other words, everything else that God commands in his word is meaningless unless these two commandments are obeyed. Love God. Love others. But I can't love others unless it's fueled and fashioned by the love for God. Because we can change the parameters and the understanding of what other, loving others looks like. We can do it from a human perspective. All right? You know, just, just give money. Just throw money. That, well, we're loving people. Just give them, give them more. Give them more. When that's not necessarily what they need. When we love God, he says, no, nah, teach them to be responsible. Maybe what they need is help in understanding how to do these things. You see, man comes up with different ideas. God has the right ideas, and we need to seek what he has to say so that we can do what he desires for us to do in loving others. Now, this brings us to a quandary. If I am to love my neighbor as myself, where and when do I stop? You with me there? Where and when do I stop? Um, it's a fair question, because we can't help everyone. Did anyone pass anyone on their way to church today that, that their car was off on the side of the road and they were changing a tire. I was driving last night. I was out past midnight and I was driving and there was a car on the side of the road and someone was changing a tire. Why didn't I stop? And if it was you, why didn't you stop? Hey, if you have a responsibility to love others, you should be stopping and helping everyone with everything, Right? Now, there's, there's got to be some kind of a way we, we filter this stuff. God has called us to love others, but now the question is, who is my neighbor? And who is the neighbor that I should be helping? And there's a, you know, there's a principle to help us faithfully honor God with this commandment to love others. And I'm calling it here the principle of moral proximity. Now, let's define it a little bit here. It simply says this, the closer the need the greater the obligation to help. I want you to think through this. It's closer because of possibly geography, family, relationships that you already established, acquaintances, your vocation, your ethnicity, your interests and hobbies. All of these are part of the, the package that helps us answer that question. How, why am I supposed to help and whom am I supposed to help? Turn, if you would please, to Galatians 6.10. Galatians 6.10. Because this, this principle of moral proximity makes obedience possible by reminding us that before Paul said, let us do good to everyone, 
He, the, he says, so then, as we have opportunity. So the question is, what does as we have opportunity mean? Ephesians 6.10, so then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. And he gives us a hint there of what moral proximity is uh, at the end of that verse. But we want to think through it. There, there, there's got to be some mechanism here, and I'm saying this mechanism, this principle of moral proximity. What does it mean to have opportunity? What does it look like? We always have opportunity, right? When I was driving down the freeway and I didn't stop last night, you say, oh, wiki, wiki, bad, bad, Pastor Rod, you didn't stop. Why didn't I stop? Well, maybe because there was a police officer there, but um, that was probably one good reason for it. But if we took every opportunity, we would never be able to fulfill the responsibilities that God has called us to, things like raising a family, earning an income, keeping our home. In the Old Testament, here is how this worked. There was this idea of moral proximity that flowed out in the following ways. The greatest responsibility first was to your family. And don't think of family as, you know, two parents and four kids. Think of your family as, you know, patriarch, matriarch, you know, and 50 people in the family, all right? Because they lived in these big... So you, you were, first of all, committed to your family. If there was a need that rose up in the family, who was the first one to be responsible to take care of that need? It was your family, Remember the story of Ruth? What stands out in the story of Ruth? There's this figure called the kinsman redeemer. Kinsman, tribe, family. The reason why Boaz did what he did is because of this principle being fleshed out. This is family, then I've got to pay attention here. Okay? So there's family. Then there's one's tribe. Then there's the nation of Israel. Then ultimately the nation. So there was this kind of, these circles that kind of went out, and it gives us kind of a, at least a, a, a rough awareness of what this looks like. As we go to the New Testament, we go to 1 Timothy 5.8, and it says this, but if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Ouch! So if you have a family member who's in need, and you have the possibility and the opportunity and the wherewithal to help meet that need, but you don't do anything about it, right? Paul says here to Timothy, you have denied the faith, and you are worse than an unbeliever. Now, he's not saying you've lost your salvation, but this is warning stuff to say, what do you think you're doing? This is family, and because it's family, you have a responsibility to that family, okay? So if family can't help, the circle then expands. And this is, I think, where sometimes we struggle. What does that look like? And who's supposed to help? And, you know, who, so many people are part of this fellowship have gone through some difficult times over the past few years. And many in this fellowship have determined, we're going to help by doing this, and we're going to help by doing that, and we're going to help by doing other things. And it's the, the church family getting together. Now, there are a couple of stories in, in Scripture that kind of, uh, flesh this out um, as far as man's wrong response to this moral proximity. I'll just choose one, and that's the, uh, the, the, the Good Samaritan, of course. The negative examples would be the priest and the Levite who are walking on this road from Jericho, and this person who's been overtaken by thieves is on the side of the road struggling, and the priest and the Levite, who, by the way, have a responsibility by virtue of their, their very calling, they don't even pay attention to this person except it, literally to step aside and to go around to go on their merry way. 
when they have the ability and they have the responsibility and they have the opportunity to help this person, um, they don't. Of course, then the Samaritan comes and he's called, you know, the good Samaritan. Why? Because he was truly a neighbor to this person. And the whole point of that, that story is to talk about what is a neighbor. All right? So th there are negative examples, but the principle of moral proximity can get very cloudy. And let me just let me throw out a couple of ways in which that is true right now, in particular in a technological age. Are we to respond, uh, are we responsible, I should say, to reach out and to help everyone who shares a need on Facebook? Or do people put needs on Facebook hoping that someone will bite? You get what I'm saying here? And, and what happens then, secondly, when you get that, that piece of, I want to say junk mail in the mail from a Christian organization that's saying, we need your help. Anyone get that kind of stuff? Now, don't get upset with them. They're looking for help. But you look at it, and you have to make a decision. And you're processing your mind. What do I do with this? All right? Has God sent this to me so I can take it inside and to pray over it and cry out and put the fleece out and all that kind of stuff? I mean, all sorts of things. No. There, there's, there, there is a, there's a grid. There's a, there's a way we process this information. I have a very simple principle. It's not necessarily a biblical principle. Uh, if I didn't go looking for it, then I'm not giving it priority. Because if it's just showing up in my mailbox, everything else is showing up in my mailbox. That doesn't mean I don't pay any attention to it, but I'm going to be careful about where I'm going to be investing money and supporting things, Okay. And I, we get solicitation all the time. It's okay to take it and say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. But we have to, it has to go through some kind of a grid, okay? So what about, again, there's, there's, that, there's that male. Well, this principle of moral proximity gives us a grid for wisdom and discernment that, that will free the conscience from false guilt and focus on God's natural work through us. The intensity of our moral obligations depends on how well we know the people, secondly, how connected they are to us, and whether those closer to the situation should assist first. This is not anyway a smokescreen for not doing anything or saying someone else will do it, but it, it is a paradigm because we are constantly aware of issues and problems or struggles or needs. And we can't meet everyone's need, can we? And we shouldn't be responsible to do that. But let's look at this one more time then. Um, our families. Someone loses a job. Um, maybe there's a split in the family. Maybe there's a sickness. Maybe there's aging. There's all sorts of different things that families experience. Families should be looking at family as the priority to taking care of their own family members. Okay? Um, now, from, from our perspective of counseling, um, you know, as, as I interact with people, I ask the question, well, is your family helping you with this? It's one of the first questions you're going to hear. It's a financial issue. Sometimes it's what's going on with your parents. Are you the only one? Are there other family members that are helping? There's a responsibility built into being a family. Secondly, your neighbors. You have neighbors to the left of you probably. You have the neighbors to the right of you. And you have neighbors over the back fence. You have neighbors across the street. At what point in time... What happens in the life of those neighbors doesn't become your responsibility. <laughs> and why is it that maybe when you hear about the neighbor on the right who's going through a difficult time, or maybe there's a tragedy, or maybe they've lost a parent or something like that, why is it that you feel compelled to go over to them and say, hey, listen, is there anything I can do? But the person who's maybe 15 houses down the street from you 
you don't have any clue what's going on in their life and you don't do anything. Even if you hear about it, you're probably not going to go down there and knock on the door and say, what can I do? Why? Because you're already functioning by this process of moral proximity. They live near me. Here's my neighbor here. Here's my neighbor here. Here's my neighbor over the back fence. Or maybe you don't even know the neighbor over the back fence, so you're not interested in them, and you have no idea what's going on in their life, and they've never interacted with you to even share with you what's going on in their life. And so you don't know. But they live near you. So something happens, you say, ah, you know what, Lord? They're my neighbors. And by the way, the fact that they're your neighbors gives you the right to enter their life and say, hey, listen, I'm just concerned. A few weeks ago, there was a fire truck that was on our street. We thought it was because we had fire in our backyard, but it wasn't. It was someone up the street who, who had been called and an ambulance had been brought and all that kind of stuff. And it's a family that we've connected with just a little bit. And so Ellie and I just walked up the street just to find out, hey, is everything okay? Now, we don't know the family incredibly, but it's just like, hey, we're concerned. But maybe three houses up the street, we wouldn't have done that because we didn't have a connection there. But because we already had a little bit of a relationship built, then we're thinking in our conscience, you know what? God, you may be asking us to do something here. Okay? It's the principle of moral proximity. The closer the need, the greater the obligation. Closer being, it can be geographical, it can be relational. So that person who lives 15 houses up the street actually may be closer than the person that's living right next to you because they may be, you know, the, 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 the mom who has four kids may be the same mom that you see at the playground and your kids are playing and so they're interacting together. So now you have a different issue of moral proximity that brings you together. Now, guys, life is full of these kinds of scenarios bouncing around and you've got to sort through them and say, God, are you asking me to enter in here? Are you asking me to be a part of this? Because if you are to love others, there have to be others in the picture, right? It's kind of hard to love others from your own living room. All right? You, you need to actually go out and interact with them, okay? So, so there, there, there's no formula here except there is a paradigm for us to filter things through. At work, now, all of us, I mean, everyone here works in a different scenario. If, if you're working outside the home or you could be in an office place, but let's just use kind of an office context, okay? And today in many businesses, you know, you have offices and then you have cubicles all massed in different places, right? You know, at what point in time does a person in a cubicle become part of this, this sphere where you would say, aha, I have a moral obligation to do something if I hear about some struggle and whatnot? I mean, you're, you're constantly processing this kind of stuff if you're there. Well, is this a person I wave to? Is this a person that actually interacts with me? Is this a person that smiled? Uh, is this a person that I sit down and we have business meetings about? You're asking all those questions. For one person, it may be, I want to go talk with them and find out how they're doing and just ask what's going on and see if there's anything I can do. Another person it might be, you know what, I'm just going to write a note. See, we're processing all these different things and ways to handle it at different levels based on our relationship with these people. Okay. So this principle of moral proximity comes and says, listen, if there's a closeness to these people because of relationship, because of, of, of ge geography, because of you know, similar interests and hobbies and that kind of stuff, then hey, you know, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to do what I can to, to see, God, what it is you're asking me to do or to be a part of to, to love others. Now, two things I think would be important for us to recognize here. Our time is just about gone. Um, that's not thing to be, to be noticing, um, although it is important. First of all, feed your proximity. 
And maybe we'll just end on this and we'll save the, the Great Commission for another time. Uh, feed your proximity. And what I mean by that is this. Listen, do you know your neighbors? If, if you, just use that scenario of neighbors. If you know your neighbor on your left, do you know your neighbor on your right? And do you know that neighbor behind you? Do you know your neighbors beyond your left and right? Now, what I'm saying by feed your proximity is you add to it by saying, you know, I want to go up there and meet our neighbors. Let's find out who they are. Let's connect with them. God has placed you in your community so that you can be the church on the ground. They're in that neighborhood. And if we just say, oh, it's just, you know, first of all, if it's just us, you know, okay, let's add it to the neighbor. And then what about the neighbor across the street and the one that's kitty corner over there and there? Are we purposeful about building some kind of relationship with these people? Because we never know how God is going to use that in the building of his kingdom. He's going to use that relationship. And when things happen, my moral proximity responsibility gauge goes up because I already have a connection with those people. You get that? At the workplace, same thing. So maybe there's that person that just waves to you or you walk by and you smile. Why don't you stop and say, hey, hi, my name is such and such and, you know, nice to meet you. I work just down here in this other department, blah, 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 okay? Um, you know, what, what, what do you do with your, uh, you know, your, your postal person? Right, Rebecca? Hey, do you smile? Do you give them gifts at Christmas? Do you, do you say thank you for doing what you're doing and you just say, hey, you know, how... You know, I'm, you know, maybe just interacting in that kind of stuff. I don't know. They're coming to your door. They're stepping on your property. They're part of your moral proximity. The question is, what are you going to do with that? And when you do something with that, that creates a greater opportunity, a greater, might want to say, circle of influence that God has given you. So feed it. Add to it by seeing that your moral proximity rises as you develop and you feed those relationships. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, here's the, here's the negative side of it. Don't fence off your proximity. I'm going to get a higher fence. You know, I'm just going to drive into my driveway, not look around, hope my neighbors don't see me. I don't want to talk to them. And we do some of that. Okay. Because we have important things to do. Now, friends, let's just kind of just bring this bring this to a close. This is these, these two great commandments, to love God, to love others. The question is, how do we love others? We don't love others without understanding that we need the fuel of God's love in us, and we need to have a love for God, meaning obeying his word, listening to his word, uh, allowing it to counsel and to guide us so that with all that we can love others. But then on a practical level, we can't love everyone in the sense that we can't reach out to everyone, but we can reach out to specific groups of people. From a missions perspective, and this is where we're going to go next, I'll just highlight it, we can't go everywhere, can we? So we have to apply the principle of moral proximity to say, where are we going to go? And maybe we're not going to do ministry in Azerbaijan, but maybe where God says, this is where Gateway is going to do ministry, we say, okay, we're going to build relationships here, and guess what we're going to do there? We're going to help them to love God and to love others and to exercise a moral, uh, a moral proximity in their context 
and to develop that. And it's okay. And you can walk with a clear conscience saying, God has called us to this. He's called us to this. He's called us to this. And you don't have to worry about the rest of the world in one sense because other churches, other ministries are going to be actively doing that. And it's far better for us to have a smaller group or a smaller, I want to say, relationship with just a few places than to have this pride thing of we, we were ministering everywhere in every continent around the world. You know what? Take one place, pour yourself into it. And for us, maybe two places, pour yourself into it and help that relationship to be established and to grow. All right? Lord, help us today. We've, we've taken a lot of time to think through, Lord, this, this, these two commandments. Lord, it is, it is your desire that we love you. <laughs> it is your desire that as we leave today, as we drive out, as we interact with families, as we go to work, Lord, that you are constantly on our minds, Lord, that we are thinking about you, that we are in awe of you, that we are adoring you. And I ask, Lord, that we would cultivate that kind of attitude, Lord, that we would just, we would just constantly love you with our whole being. And Lord, that, that love is fueled by an understanding of who you are, Lord. So we're, we're, we're seeking to know you, but we're also responding with what we know, with this, this love for you. But Lord, also you've called us to love others. And Lord, there's a way to do that. And there's an important priority in that love for others. And Lord, that, that priority ultimately is to open up the word of God and for them to see the truth and the glory of your gospel. But Lord, that that opportunity and that, that possibility comes as we develop these relationships in loving others. So Lord, help us to think about our sphere of influence. Help us to think about this, this moral proximity that we have with those that we have relationships with, Lord, to develop and cultivate them. And Lord, in doing so, to trust that you are going to work in our lives so that we can um, interact and we can have opportunities to share the, the good news of your gospel. Lord, this, this blessing that we have is because of you. It is the gospel. And Lord, we have been the recipients of it. And Lord, help us not to be selfish with it, but Lord, to be free to share it and to do so for your glory. We ask in your precious holy name. Amen.